uh, what's the, the passenger, the seatbelt light goes off. And everybody rushes for a single seat so that as soon as the, the seatbelt light goes off, they can just kind of roll over on the seat. So it would be really cool if some of you could come forward because there's a lot of empty seats today. And it's really, really good viewing up the front. When I was, um, when I was little, my mum used to take us to Catholic church. Anybody else here been to Catholic church? Okay, a few of you. Okay, you may know this song. We went to Catholic school too, and they taught us this song called Go Tell Everyone. Anybody know that one? Think so? Okay, so when I start singing in a second, <laughs> that's your cue, okay? It goes something like this. Thanks, Ross, for putting your fingers in your ears. It's good. This is my audition for the worship prayer, okay? Okay, okay, ready? Yeah, when, <laughs> I was practicing in the shower this morning. It sounded really good. <laughs> Okay, something like this is, Go tell everyone the news that the kingdom of God has come. And go tell everyone the news that God's kingdom has come. Bum, bum. I'm in? All right. Thank you. Now, the bum, bum wasn't in the song. That was what we always used to sing at the end, and the principal would always frown, like kind of filling those, those gaps. But it kind of made me feel like you, all you had to do to share God's kingdom or God's word with the world was kind of skip gaily down the street and sing this song. And like some kind of Hollywood musical, people would file out of their houses behind you and they kind of, you know, it's sort of a Pied Piper kind of scene. Um, and I don't think it's quite that easy. And I, I'm not sure what would happen if we had to try that then, but I'm pretty sure if you tried that in the streets of Dan Nong today, you wouldn't have the result necessarily that you wanted. Anyone here from Dan Nong? Ooh, okay, all right. Um, Mark's been teaching on hearing God's voice. And last week he left us with a bit of a challenge. And that was a sheet of paper with a, a silhouette of a person. And you would go home and to pray and to write down the person's name, put it on the back of your toilet door or wherever you spend a lot of time, and, uh, and pray for them. And that, that's wonderful because if you engage the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer you will find that you have God moments, that you will have times where you meet somebody and it's a God-ordained moment. It's meant to be. And at that moment, what you're going to need to do is open your mouth and speak. Now, I know if you're like me, uh, like I have been, um, that would make you kind of fill your pants. It's like, I'm going to have to speak, you know. It's a bit scary, um, I used to get really nervous and, that, and I know how it feels sometimes when you're in a position where you have to say something. And, uh, you know, when I used to play football, I used to find myself most of the time, just before we ran out on the ground, I would be in the toilets and I would be emptying my stomach of whatever I'd had for breakfast because I was so nervous. A bit like how I felt this morning before I got up here. Um, but it didn't stop me running out on the ground and playing the game. Okay? And so how you feel is not necessarily... Um, or shouldn't necessarily affect what God wants you to do. Um, you know, our heads run through with all these little questions like, you know, what if they ask me this? Or what if, they, what, what if I have to explain that? As if we have to have all the answers. Um, and some, so some of us feel get really nervous and quite uptight about having to talk to people. Some of us feel like the Energizer Bunny. Energizer Bunny on the television. I feel like we've been packed full of Duracells. It's like, yeah, let's go. 
I just want to get out there and tell people. You live to tell people. That's what you do. Some of you don't know how that feels because you've never done it. You've never stepped out like that before. And uh, some of you, and I would include myself in this because I've kind of subscribed to this St. Francis of Assisi saying that wherever you go, preach the gospel and where necessary, use words. Now, that's a great theology if we live it the way that he lived it. But some of us, I think, have rewritten that into our own language and it goes something like this. If I live a good enough life, I won't have to speak. Now, that is a dangerous theology. Now, at the last church I was at, we had a, um, we had a guy who uh, led the youth group and we had a youth night there and we invited, I think we had about 16 children along for that night and the, the man who was leading it, the guy who was leading it, I was kind of a 2IC, the guy who was leading it had prayed about it, he'd felt it, he had a word from the Lord about what he wanted to share and he felt that he, what he wanted to do at the end of the night was have an altar call so that he would invite anybody who wanted to give their lives to Christ to come forward. And I said, yeah, that's great. That's cool. Um, so we, we ran our normal night and then he gave this message at the end. And then he, he asked anybody to come forward who would like to give their lives to Christ. And out of the 16 children there, nine of them stood. And he was like, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, this is great. But he, he asked me to come up the front and lead them through the sinner's prayer and, and lead them you know, and I, you know why he did that? Because he'd never done it before. He'd never led anybody to the Lord. He'd never, he'd never, you know, it's like kind of like leading the horse, horse to water, but not getting them, you know, like getting the water for, it's like leading them to the, to the gates of, of heaven, but not opening the gate for them. And I think it's really sad that some of us, I think, can get to that point where we've, we've got, we know it, we know how to do it, we've heard it done, we've seen it done, but when it gets to that point, we kind of freeze because teaching people, or telling people, or leading people, it requires us to speak. It requires us to hear from God and to speak out what he says. Now, the Bible is the living word of God, and I know that the word of God alone can open people's eyes. That is true. People can read the Bible and come to a knowledge of Christ without anybody speaking. That is possible. I've got a short clip from a movie that I want to show you. Um, it's from the movie Amistad. Who's seen Amistad? Wow. No, oh, yes, couple. Okay. It's a slave ship. Yes. Yeah, you've been there? Okay. All right. It's, a, it's about a group of men, African men, who were taken from East Africa uh, in uh, 1839, I think it was. And although the slave trade was banned about 22 years earlier, um, some of these people still ran the gauntlet because um, it was lucrative. It was a lucrative trade. And what happened was this slave ship had come out and uh, somehow during the, the trip, one of the two of the slaves had got free. They'd overrun the ship and they were kind of drifting adrift in the ocean. They were picked up by another ship and taken to a port in America. And there ensued this, this is a true story, by the way. There ensued this, um, uh, what do you call it, a court case, I guess, about who owned the slaves, who owned the cargo of the ship, which country. <laughs> And so this scene is um, a bunch of guys sitting in a prison waiting for someone to tell them who owns them. And they don't know what's going to happen because they don't speak the language. Nobody speaks their language. But what they have had is one of the guys has been given a Bible by someone as they went into the courthouse one day. And uh, he's having a flick through it. 
And what happens next, I think, is remarkable. Mua, 
It's a moving scene, isn't it? The message of Christianity is not that hard to understand. If a bunch of slaves who don't know the language can get the message from pictures in the Bible, how much easier would it be if they had someone there to explain it to them in their own language? And so today, we're going to talk about the task that God's given us, the Great Commission, to go tell everyone. We're going to look at the... I think you'll have to click it, Matt. Thank you. We're going to look at the, the why, the how, the what of evangelism. So the first question is why? Why do we have to evangelize? And I know some of you are saying, oh, well, why can't we leave that to the people who have the gift, who have the gift of speaking to people? And that's a good question. Why do we have to tell, why do we have to tell people about Jesus? Let's look at a couple of Bible verses that might clarify it. The first one is from uh, Matthew 28. It says, Jesus undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. God authorized and commanded me to commission you Go out and train everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life, marking them by baptism in the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you, and I'll be with you as you do this, day after day, right up until the end of the age. And the other verse is from Mark sixteen fifteen, which says, Go into the world, go everywhere, and announce the message of God's good news to one and all. Whoever believes and is baptized is saved. Whoever refuses to believe is damned. Strong words. Strong words. God authorized and commanded Jesus to commission us. Jesus wasn't about to do, uh, sorry, Jesus wasn't about to not do what his father had commanded. And I'm not about to renege on a command that Jesus has given us. Because I think. Some verses in the Bible speak of God's specific will and some speak of his general will. I think this one, or these two, speak of both. His general will is that no one should perish. That, that is the will of God. No one should perish. His specific will is that we should go and make sure that that happens. The word go is used a lot. We're authorised representatives. Now, authorised representatives of a company like a sales rep or someone like that, what would happen if that sales rep never went out on the road to sell his wares? He would never find out who was actually prepared to pay to buy the stuff that he had to sell. And sometimes I think we're a bit like the words of that Sons of, so Sons of Korra song, you know, that um, we're kind of, we're ships and we're in the harbour. We've never gone out into the open ocean. We've never actually sailed out to see what God might do through us. It's the same way with us. I think uh, we believe in the product, don't we? Thank you. Darren. <laughs> One person believes in the product. I mean, the pro by the product, I mean we believe in the kingdom. We believe in Jesus. We, we have faith. We believe in what we're trying to sell. Now, I know it's not a sell. Sell sounds crass, doesn't it? It sounds like we're trying to sell something to somebody that they don't want. The fact is, if people knew what we were selling, 
everyone would want it. If they fully understood, if we were able to explain it to them, they would all want it. So we need to walk in the authority that God's given us and leave the response of people up to God. How they respond to us is not our concern. Our concern is to go and share. So who? Who is called to evangelize? I think, answer that for me. Who's called to evangelize? Everyone. All right. So we don't have to spend much time on this topic, do we? Because we know that everybody's been called. And the Great Commission is for everybody who believes. The verse says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So always be prepared to tell people why you believe. And that is to defend your faith in God. Now, that's how I always read that verse, defending my beliefs. If somebody asked me, why do you believe? I had to have a reason to give them so that I didn't look stupid. So I could actually justify why I believed. And I think the Bible, sorry, the Bible talks about the Bible being a how many-edged sword? Two-edged sword. So with a sword, you can either defend or attack. And I believe this verse talks about defending our faith, defending why we believe, but also giving someone else a reason to believe. Always be prepared to give them a reason why they should believe also. It's okay to justify why we believe it. We know it. But to transfer that into words that someone else might make the decision to believe also, that's something else that we can do. I'm not suggesting we take the swords to the heathens like the crusaders did, nor am I suggesting we hit people over the head with a Bible because the two words that are used there are gentleness and respect. And I think sometimes as Christians, as we've tried to share uh, the word, we kind of forget those two words because the message is so important and we have to get it out there. Um, the, the, those words are there for a reason. and I think many is the person who've left the church because those words have been kind of skipped over. Gentleness and respect. So let's look at what kind of evangelist are you because we've established that everybody is to share the word. The commission is for everyone. So everyone has to be a particular kind of evangelist. Now this evangelist is my, my wife. My wife's a rhino. <laughs> In the nicest possible way. She likes to, she likes to tackle problems head on. Um, and, and this kind of evangelism is confrontational. It kind of confronts fears and stuff head on. You know, Peter, Jesus said to Peter, what about you? Who do you say that I am? He didn't mince words. He just went, this is the question I want you to answer. Um, and Peter, I think, did the same, exactly, exactly the same thing. I mean, he probably didn't know how to mince words. He was a fisherman. Um, so they just went straight to the heart of the matter. They didn't bandy around the topic. They confronted the fears or objections of those that they met head on. And yet they did it with gentleness and respect. And I think sometimes us uh, people who have that choleric um, kind of personality, um, we kind of forget the gentleness and we expect people to forgive us because that's who we are. You know, have you heard that saying that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? Well, we invented that. The clerics invented that because we have to ask forgiveness so many times because of the way we tackle people head on. So 
we need to model our evangelism on how Jesus behaved. He was firm, but he was respectful. Um, so how many people would say that they're in the category of, of front on? No? One or two? Okay, a couple. Three. Good. <laughs> Ooh, you're all thinking now. The next one is the, uh, is the intellectual. Now, I know we'd all like to be like Albert Einstein. Um, who created logic? God did. God created everything. God created logic. So it must really sadden him, I think, when we use, or the world uses logic to try and disprove his existence. Kind of illogical logic. It's one of the essential tools of the evangelist. If you have a keen mind, you can persuade people. Now, I always thought persuasion was kind of this pressure, but it's not. Persuasion and pressure are two completely different things. When Paul went to Athens, he used persuasion. He talked with them. He, he discussed with them. And he persuaded them that Jesus was the Son of God and that the God that they worshipped, the unknown God, was Jesus in the flesh. For days and nights, he did that. Now, apologetics is the branch of theology that, that kind of exposes and expounds the reasons to believe in Jesus. And if you've read the books, you know, maybe you've read a book by Josh McDowell, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. If you've read those books, you're well armed, okay, with apologetics. And I know the issue is when you come to talk to somebody is recalling that information and putting it in the words what sounded so clear when you read the book. So who would put themselves in this category? Somebody um, who was, who's, likes to use logic, likes to use apologetics to prove. Thanks, okay, we've got Matt, we've got one taker, couple, Sam, thank you. All right, next one is testimonial. Now, this is a great one. Testimonies um, are amazing. It's from John 9, the man replied, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact is he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. This I know. I once was blind, but now I see. Testimony. And your story of how you've awakened, how your spirit's awakened to God, how you've come to the Lord, is a powerful tool. It's a powerful weapon in your arsenal of being able to share your faith. Because what happened to you is your story. It's nobody else's. No one can say, no, that didn't happen to you. It's your story. The first time I shared my testimony, I, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I mean, I went to Catholic church as a child. At 15, I decided, forget it. You know, it's, our church is reasonably boring. On a boring scale, it was right up there. And I decided it wasn't for me. So the first time I ever went on a youth camp, I wasn't a youth, I was a leader. And I was reasonably young leader, 23 or 24. And they said, at the end of the camp, you're going to, have to, you're going to share your testimony of how you came to the Lord. Now, I sat there and thought, my testimony is pretty boring. Okay, there's no here. I wasn't, you know, one of these dramatic, huge into, into all the stuff. And then I've had this big turn of the leaf. And now I'm, look, at, look who I am now. Yeah, I thought it wasn't very exciting at all. And so I was, I was um, petrified. I mean, I, my hands were sweaty, my thighs were sweaty. Parts of me that you don't want to know about were sweaty. And I was, I was just really scared. And so I sat on a stool in front of 70 kids that were kind of sitting on the floor and the leaders as well. And I 
just told him my story. Um, at the end of it, when I finished, there was silence. And you could sense respect. And even some of the girls were crying. Just like, what are they crying for? You know? And I think that's what you can expect. When you share your story, at the very least, you can expect some respect for where you've been and what you've discovered. And in a lot of people, because not, not a lot of people have a firm foundation, they will actually be very interested in how you came to where you are and why you believe. So use your story. Share it. Share your journey of faith in God and use it often because it's effective. Who's ever shared their testimony? Okay. That's good. Use it often. Next type is a service evangelist. Now this is this is kind of where the Salvation Army has 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 pushed their uh, arm of service, you know, a, a heart to God and a hand to man kind of thing. Um, you might be the kind of person that likes to be behind the scenes. You like to serve. Um, and uh, you know, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Who was sorry, Tabitha. <laughs> you know, okay. Who <laughs> was always doing good and helping the poor. In James 2.14 it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now the world's coined this phrase, actions speak louder than words. Unfortunately, not as often. There are a lot more words than there are actions. It's full of good intentions, the world, but no action to back it up. And family on the end of the phone who say, love you, Words, by their actions, don't show it. If you back up your words with actions, you will have the respect of men and women for your integrity of always being a person who does what they say. Who would say there are this kind of, this kind of person, this kind of evangelist, behind-the-scenes service kind of person? Right? Yeah, we've got a few. Good. Invitational. Invitational evangelist. This is the one where you don't have to speak as much. This is kind of like the cop-out evangelism, if you like. <laughs> this is the one where you bring people to Jesus and let him do the work. You know, you invite someone to youth group. I'm not so confident to talk to this person, so I'm going to bring him to somebody who is confident. I'm going to bring them to Alpha and, you know, Nikki Gumbel on the video and the group leader will explain everything to them and I'll just kind of be along for the ride. It does look like a cop-out kind of evangelism, but you know this is actually probably the smartest form of evangelism there is because to bring people to Jesus is an amazing gift. Andrew did it in the Old Testament. You know, uh, you know, sorry, Old Testament, New Testament. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, he went to Simon Peter and he said, I think I found the one. And Peter said, surely? Really? And Andrew said, yeah, come and see. And so he took him to Jesus. 
and the rest is history. Peter became a church leader who became very, um, or if you like, responsible almost for the growth of the church in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so not everybody can be like Peter, but everybody can be like Andrew. Everybody can invite someone along like Andrew. There was a guy by the name of Andrew, uh, sorry, Andrew, Albert McMakin. Probably never heard of him, and for very good reason. He was one of these people. Albert McMakin was um, a farmhand, worked on a farm in America um, in the early 20th century. And a, a travelling evangelist show came to, came to town, and they set up a tent outside town. And he wanted to take all the farmhands that worked on the farm uh, to the tent ministry that, each night. It was there for a week. And he got most of them, but he couldn't get this one guy. This one guy is a 17-year-old young guy, good-looking, had lots of girlfriends, and he's like, you know, my wife's pretty good. I don't really need to go to that. And he thought, how am I going to get him to come to this? So he said, look, would you come if you can drive the truck? They'd all kind of piled on the back of the truck. He goes, yeah, okay, all right. I'll come if I can drive the truck. So he came, and he went each night. And each night, he drove the truck. They all went into the meeting. He sat in the truck, okay, and stayed outside. And the last night the evangelist was there, he decided that he would go inside and just see, at least have a look at what was going on. And he came in the back of the tent and he was spellbound. He said, he said it just gripped him. And at the end of the night when the evangelist said, "Is anybody would like to come forward, he just felt himself coming forward to the front. And he gave his life to Christ that night. Now since that time... That guy has spoken to over 200 million people in person about Christ. A few years ago, he had the chance to speak to half the world's population by direct broadcast. He's been the confidant of nine American presidents. And realistically, in the church, in church terms, he's a living legend. And his name, of course, is Billy Graham. Not everybody can do what Billy Graham has done. But everybody can do what Albert McMakin did. You never know the next person you bring to an Alpha course or you bring to a youth group or you bring to church or whatever that you speak to. You never know where life may take them. And if they overtake you in their gifts and their... Fantastic. You know, you've just been obedient and done what God's wanted you to do. Who would put themselves in this group? Last but not least, interpersonal evangelist. Now, this is a person who likes to have one project at a time. So we like to get up close and personal with one person. We like to journey with somebody. We like to support them. We like to be around them. We like to share with them, walk with them through their crises. You know, you can relate easily. You can adapt to suit individual people. You like to focus just on one thing at a time. You like to make sure that you see the job through. Normally, these kind of people can empathise with people's pain very easily. Now, relationships are important, and, uh, and like the Holy Spirit, you like to be the comforter in times of trouble. People trust you, never abuse that trust. So when the time comes to speak, you know your friend that well that they will listen. It's a relational kind of evangelism. I love this kind of evangelism, because this, I think, is almost the most effective form of evangelism. It produces fruit that lasts. Who would put themselves in this, in this group? Yeah. Okay. Which of these types of evangelism, evangelism works the best, do you think? 
All of them. Yeah, all of them. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus actually used all of these types of evangelism. And very effectively, but with gentleness and respect. That's cool. So we know now that we are all called to evangelize. We've now identified what kind of evangelist we will be, or we are. Now let's look at how. 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 How we're going to do it. <laughs> I've sat under a lot of messages where people have told me what I've got to do. So get out there and do it. Okay. That's cool, but how? How will I do it? Like, I'm pretty nervous about it. So give me some tools to use or at least something to say or a reason why. Modern uh, evangelism has kind of strayed, I think, from the way that Jesus, the way that Jesus evangelized. Martin Luther said, the first duty of the gospel preacher is to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Today we evangelize by offering people love, joy, peace, comfort, happiness. And yet the fallaway rate from the church is like 80 to 90%. They're from the people who actually receive Christ and come to church. The fallaway rate's 80 to 90%. That tells you that the way that we're doing is perhaps not working as well as it should. And that's because I think that the, the modern church doesn't necessarily use Jesus' approach. So let's look at how he does it. The rich young ruler is a story that always confused me. As he went out into the street, a man came running up and greeted him with great reverence, as greeted Jesus, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good but God. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat. Honour your father and mother. He said, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. And he said, there is one thing left. Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth and come follow me. The man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear. And he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. It kind of looks like Jesus needed to do an evangelism course. Like, here's a guy who's like, oh, I'm ready. I'm ready. Tell me what I need to do. And Jesus lets him walk away. I mean, surely that's not what we should do. Surely we should, you know, come along and say, look, God's going to give you a great life. You've got a God-shaped hole. There's a vacuum in your heart that only God can fill. And you know, all those things that we say. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't get stuck in intellectual arguments with people. He went straight for the conscience. He went to that part of the person that knows right from wrong instinctively. And I think if you want to reach your friends and your family members effectively without having to memorize a million answers to a million questions, you talk to their conscience. Because the conscience is a part of us that knows right from wrong. And it's powerful. The great preachers of the past have used it. Uh, Wesley, Edwards, Spurgeon, Moody, Whitfield. They were effective because they didn't use the methods that the modern church uses. They didn't follow the modern tradition of, you know, God has this wonderful plan for your life. I mean, he does. But that's not a reason. That's not the reason to come to the Lord. That he's going to make your life wonderful. They spoke to the conscience. And they used the law of God. 
So by asking the man to sell all that he had, Jesus was really saying to him, have you really kept the first commandment? The first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And the man was sad and he walked away because yes, he had. He had put his wealth and his money before God. Jesus was right in front of him and he chose still to walk away. Now we know whatever that the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that murmurs and excuses of every mouth may be hushed and all the world may be held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. Now imagine if I said to you, I had some fantastic news for you. I've just paid a $250 speeding fine for you. No problem. Now, is that good news? It would be if you thought you had a $250 speeding fine, I guess. But if, you, if you're like, what do you mean? I don't have a $250 speeding fine. In fact, it's almost an insult insisting that, you know, me insinuating that I have paid something for you that you didn't even know you had. I think it would make a lot more sense if I said, on the way here, as you were driving through officer to come to church, you went 80 kilometres through a 40 kilometre speed zone. There were 10 different signs there that there was a blind children's convention going on, and yet you cruised through at 80 kilometres an hour. Now the police were there with their radar, and they're about to slap you with a $250 fine, but someone you don't know has come along and paid that fine on your behalf. Now that's good news. And the difference between the two scenarios is that you knew what you'd done wrong. And so the good news makes sense. If you don't know what you've done wrong, as the Bible says, it's foolishness to think that I've paid something for you that you didn't even know you had. You know, when we, when we have dust on a table, this is another example. If you, if you go into a living room and you polish off your table and wipe all the dust off or whatever, and then you throw the curtains open, what do you see? Dust. <laughs> you see the bits you've missed. You see the dust in the air. You see dust on the table. But the dust was there all the time. The light didn't make the dust. The light just exposed it. And that's why Paul said, by law, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The, sin, the, not, the law is a reflection. The law shows us that we are sinners. We hold it up against us. It's like a mirror. And what we can do for people is draw back the curtain to the Holy of Holies and shine God's light on their life. And sin becomes evident. To do that with gentleness and respect is a gift. <laughs> okay. Those two words need to come through the whole thing. And the problem, I think, is that society as a whole has become very unaware even people in the church have become very unaware of the law because we're not under law, we're under grace. And that's true. We are under grace. But God's law hasn't changed. He still doesn't like murderers or adulterers. I shouldn't say that. He doesn't like murder or adultery. Now, they're still the standard by which he judges the world. Who would like to have a go at naming the Ten Commandments? Hmm. Okay. 
Go for it. Go for it, Tanya. Oh, I want him in order. Oh. If we were, if we, sorry, if we were in, with five-year-old Jewish boys, they could do this. Easy. Easy. Go for it. Tick. Ow. It is one. It is. It is one. It's not number two though. Thanks, Tabata. Yes. Maybe as a group we can get the whole ten. Number five. Yes. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Yep. Mm. Okay, want me to make it easy for you? Who am I going to pick? Who am I going to pick? Andrew, Andrew, come up here. Come up here. Me. You. <laughs> you. <laughs> yes. So she'll be able to answer this question really easily. Name for me yeah. 10 different beers. Go. Works Gold, BB, Tui, Heineken, Stella, Draft. Where am I up to? Seven. Yep. You've missed Foster's. Can't believe you missed Foster's. Oh, okay. Oh, is it? he's an uppity beer drinker. Only tourist drinker. Is that right? Okay. Oh, pure blonde. Pure blonde. Oh, that'll do. That's 10. Wow, how easy was that? 10 different beers, but we can't get the 10 commandments. Mmm. Okay. Yeah, I don't want any justification. Now, we're not under the law. We're under grace, and that's true. We are under grace. We're under the new covenant. So we're no longer under the penalty of the law. But the standards of the Ten Commandments are still the standards that God uses to judge. They're still the same. They haven't changed. And lying, stealing, adultery, blasphemy, idolatry. You know, God, the Bible says they're the person, people that we cast into the lake of fire. And in order for thieves and liars to understand that what they need is a saviour, they need to be confronted with the standards that God uses. They need to know what the result is of the sin. And they don't know that they are sinners until they hear God's law. And so the law is what Jesus used. Jesus used it without, throughout Scripture. He went straight to the Ten Commandments. He went straight to the law and said, have you done this? And yes, now we know as Christians we're not going to be condemned because we don't. But I guarantee that the one thing that made you decide to become a Christian was discovering that you hadn't kept God's law, that you were a sinner, that you were a sinner and you needed to be saved by grace. And the church as a whole, I think, has strayed a whole lot from biblical evangelism. And sharing the gospel the way that Jesus did and the way that the Apostle Paul did is not the way that we do it. Now, if we think of it this way, so two people walk onto a plane, 
I did this talk at, the, at our Berry Church of Christ a few years ago, and I actually used backpacks to, to illustrate it. I haven't got those with me today, but two people walk onto a plane. The first person that walks onto a plane is given a parachute, right? And they, they're told that the parachute is going to make their flight easier. So if you just put this parachute on, have you ever, anybody ever been parachuting? No, not a single person. Oof, okay, and you never will, Kerry, will you? No, okay. If, if you put a... Oh, yes, thank, thank you, Christina. Parachute obviously open for you. <laughs> now, if you put a parachute on and you attempt to sit down in an in a, a aeroplane seat, you'll find that it, immediately you'll find it's extremely uncomfortable, okay? It's not going to make your life or your flight better. And so the person puts it on, he sits in the seat, he straps himself up, he buckles in, and, you know, a few people are kind of looking sideways at him, you know, what is this loony doing? And it uh, makes some other people feel very nervous because they think, you know, what's going to happen to the flight? This guy's wearing a parachute. And eventually people start to snigger, people turn around, you can see people talking behind their hands and they start pointing at him. And he becomes very self-conscious that he's wearing this parachute. And eventually he takes it off, puts it on the ground and goes, I'm never going to do that again. It didn't make my flight better. It made me ridiculed. It made people laugh at me. It made me feel uncomfortable. Now, a second guy walks onto the plane, and the uh, I say the waitress, well, she kind of is a waitress, a stewardess, gives him a parachute and says, put this on, because 50 minutes into the flight, the engines are going to stop. The pilot's going to say, we're going down. And so he puts it on, and he sits in his seat, and he immediately finds that it's uncomfortable. And people start to point at him and laugh at him and make fun of him. Do you think he's going to take it off? No, because he didn't put it on to make his flight better. He put it on because he knows the plane is going down. Now, if the stewardess comes along the, with a cup of coffee and she goes, oh, and spills hot coffee on his lap, is he going to take off the parachute and go, stupid parachute? No, because that's not what he put it on. He didn't put it on to make his flight better. He put it on because it's going to save his life. And in essence, Jesus is our parachute. In some kind of crass way, he's going to save us. And so when people ridicule us, when we put on Jesus, we put on Christ, as the Bible says, if people ridicule us, does that make a difference to us? No, it doesn't. Because we know the end result is going to be that Jesus saves and we will be saved and essentially those are the two kinds of evangelism we have today the evangelism of this will make your life better and the evangelism of this will save you and the make your life better has a huge fall away people taking parachutes off all over the place as soon as they come up against something hard in their life they take it off and say, well, that hasn't worked for me, and I'm not going to try it again. I think you'll see this point illustrated. This is my last clip for today. In this next film clip, um, it's from a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Who's, who's seen Stranger Than Fiction? Will Ferrell? No Will Ferrell fans? A couple of people have seen it. Okay. It's, um, it's a, there's a guy named Harold. He's a tax auditor in America, and he's been ordered to audit this small cookie shop run by um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and uh, her name's Anna in the film. Um, 
Harold hates his job. He hates being a tax auditor. I mean, who would love that, really? He hates it, right? She, however, loves her little cookie shop. But she hates him having to come and audit her. And so she makes his life tough. She doesn't make a lot of money. She's a bit of a free spirit. And she resents Harold. Let's have a look. cookies I ever had were store-bought. Okay. Sit down. No, I'm... No. Sit down. Now. Eat a cookie. I, I really can't. Mr. Crick, it was a really awful day. I know. I made sure of it. So pick up the cookie, dip it in the milk, and eat it. That's a really, really good cookie. Mm. When did you decide to become a baker? Um, in college. Oh, like a cooking college? I went to Harvard Law, actually. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I just assumed it was... No, no. I didn't finish. Something happened? No. I was barely accepted. I mean, really, barely. The only reason they let me come was because of my essay. How I was going to make the world a better place with my degree. And anyway, we would have to participate in these study sessions. Mm -hmm. My classmates and I sometimes all night long. And so I'd bake. So no one would go hungry while we worked. Sometimes I'd bake all afternoon in the kitchen in the dorm. And then I'd bring my little treats to the study groups. And... People loved them. Eats. I mean, oatmeal cookies, peanut butter bars, dark chocolate macadamia nut wedges. And mm. everyone would eat and stay happy and study harder and do better on the test. And then more and more people started coming to the study groups and <laughs> I'd bring more snacks. And I was always looking for better and better recipes until soon. Mm. It was ricotta cheese and apricot croissants and mocha bars with an almond glaze and lemon chiffon cake with zesty peach icing. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. and at the end of the semester, I had 27 study partners, eight mead journals filled with recipes and a D average. So I dropped out. I just figured if I was going to make the world a better place, I would do it with cookies. You like them? I do. I'm glad. Thank you for forcing me to eat them. You're welcome. <laughs> and for all of Harold's life, he'd been missing out on the delicious, comforting experience of eating cookies because all he'd ever eaten were the tasteless, impersonal, store-bought kind that his mum made, or his mum bought, I should say. And although they kind of masqueraded as cookies, they were, they were always something missing. You know, Anna's cookies are the real deal. Anna's cookies are warm and fresh from the hands of a master baker who cares about what she makes. And Harold finds his world kind of altered as a result of eating one of her cookies, because he finally had a chance to eat a real cookie. His previous experiences had made him think that you know, he didn't like cookies. And now he realizes that, you know, actually I do. And I wonder how many people have a bad taste in their mouth from a lifetime experiences of store-bought Christianity. Now encounters with stale, tasteless, mass-produced religious experiences shared by those who are just dropping it off or unlikely to move those that receive it. It might even make the receiver feel like there's, you know, if this is what Christianity is about, you know, I don't think I really want it. And the difference between store-bought cookies and Anna's cookies are stark. Store-bought cookies are cheap, poorly made, badly presented, and impersonal. Anna's cookies are made with the best ingredients. They're created from a desire to make the world a better place. They're presented to people in an attractive way, and they're made by a person who cares about the eater. And that's where we come in. We're offering people the real deal. Not religion, freedom from rules. A life full, not of drudgery, but of freedom. And God has left us here to do this task. That's why we're here. He doesn't have a backup plan to tell the world about him. We're it. We're his plan to lift Jesus up and bring work bring the world into the knowledge of God. So let's get into it. Let's pray. Father, would you today help us to see the reality of real Christianity? Help us to picture Jesus and who he was. Not a church, not a steeple, not a preacher, not religion, not rules, but Jesus. Help us see, Lord, the message that we are selling, so to speak, is the most important message the world needs to hear. Lord, would you encourage each one of us this week as we pray for our divine appointments? Would you encourage us, Lord, to step out, to open our mouths, to investigate what we need to investigate, to equip ourselves to preach your word to the people out there. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.